0: The Art Dealer Diaries are brought to you by Medicine Man Gallery, located for over 26 years in Tucson, Arizona, specializing in antique Native American art, early Western art, including the famed Maynard Dixon, as well as modern art. You can find everything online at medicinemangallery.com. There's over 6,000 objects to select from. Also, the Charles Bloom Murder Mystery Series, written by yours truly, me, Mark Sublet. There's six books in the series, and they follow the protagonist Charles Bloom through all the intrigue of the art world set in Santa Fe and the Navajo Nation. These can be found on Audible, eBooks, Amazon, and of course the gallery at medicinemangallery.com. I love this interview with Art Hitner. Art is a Harvard-trained lawyer who is just a wonderful collector. He's one of those individuals that falls in love with art, probably should have been an art dealer to begin with. tells us how he goes about collecting art, what he looks for, and his specialty is 1930s and 40s Depression-era paintings and his love for that and the books he's actually written. Very interesting podcast from the perspective of a driven collector. Art Hittner on the Art Daily Diaries. See, professional stuff. You go into an art gallery and I'm you impressed. expect to see art. and am <laughs> I'm impressed. Pulls back into a podcast room. Art Hittner on today. Thank you for coming, Art. It's my pleasure. You know, with a name like Art, yes. it's going to be a good podcast, right? It's got to be a good <laughs> podcast because your name depicts what you do and what you love. Yeah. And how is, I mean, so I read, you know, a little bit about you because I've known you for, I don't know, what, maybe five Seven years or eight so. years, I, I fast, think. A yeah. long time. And, um, and I know you have a passion for art, you're a collector and all that, but I don't really know the nitty and the gritty of how you got there. So let's just start. So you grew up on the East Coast in Massachusetts? No, I grew up in New Jersey. Same difference, right?
1: No, it's not the same (laughs) difference. New Jersey is a place I didn't want to do anything more than just grow up. I wanted to get out of there as soon as I could. Did
0: you? When you were growing up, was that right? Did you? Well,
1: I didn't. I'm sure I didn't know any better. New Jersey, um, this is in the 1950s and early 60s was uh, I lived in a bedroom com- community from yeah. New York City. And Is
0: that like a suburb or no?
1: Yeah, it's a suburb, but it. this was the period when suburbs just burgeoned. Yeah. And our town, a uh, little town called New Milford, uh-huh. went from that's a why, population. That's
0: why I thought it was like Massachusetts. I think I saw New Milford. That seemed to be like one of those, yes, <laughs> those yes. towns it's a common. should be.
1: We we went from a population of six thousand. Remember this six thousand and six uh-huh. in nineteen fifty to about twenty thousand in nineteen sixty. So more than tripled population yeah, right. within ten years. Yeah. And during that period, there was no planning. There were no parks. There was just no way to handle it. Oh, nothing even close. No. Yeah. No. So it was it was a community where it deserved the moniker bedroom community. Yeah. You, you slept there if you worked in New York. Uh-huh. And, uh-huh. and you know, my, my father worked in New York.
0: Yeah, what did
1: he do? He was uh, an electrician. Oh, uh, he yeah. worked in the, uh, the union, IBEW3, mm-hmm. um, and actually for a period of probably a dozen years when I was um, maybe in my, before my teens and then into my early teens, he... Took a break from that, and he opened up a little hardware store hmm. in the town of New Milford. And that was great until the big box stores came in.
0: Wow. And then so how it was all did, over. Yeah, so how long did he do that?
1: I think he did that about eight or
0: ten years. And so what years would have that been?
1: I think that would have been uh, probably the mid-50s to the early 60s.
0: And did he see the writing on the wall, or it just put him out of business?
1: He saw the writing on the wall. He got out before he was losing money, yeah. but um, oh, everything changed in, in retail. Well, how did that then? affect
0: you as a kid growing up? Were you still at home at that point? Yeah,
1: I, it didn't affect me at all. I wouldn't have known any better.
0: Yeah, so it did, you didn't feel the no. strife at home or anything? Because, you know, no. opening your own business, making it work, and then saying, hey, this is basically not going to work anymore is a very difficult thing for a person to go through.
1: I think it probably is, but I don't think it ever got that bad. I, I think he yeah. uh, he just realized that he wasn't going to be able to compete price wise with uh, all the little, all the the large companies that were coming in and building the big box stores. That was that was the era when that was
0: happening, and it, it changed everything. Did it affect the way you saw how you might want to do life?
1: No, I, I think I, uh, <laughs> I I think I lived a fairly. Uh, uh, uninvolved existence. I was just a kid growing up in a little town. I didn't know any better. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> working hard in high school and had no idea what I wanted to do in life and didn't feel like I had to think about it You yet. didn't
0: say, kid, don't go into the union or don't open your own store, get an education and become a Lawyer?
1: No, um, but I must say that when I was, uh, when I started college, or I think it was actually the summer before my first year of college. The, that was Dartmouth, right? That was Dartmouth, right. The union um, had a program where you could spend the summers in um, as an apprentice or really sub apprentice, yeah. a helper is what yeah. they, the term they used, on a job. And I, um, I took them up on it because the pay was incredibly good, and I worked on a uh, a skyscraper that was going up in Midtown Manhattan. And I think wow. it was, I think it was about forty stories, and it was all unenclosed. And I was uh, assigned to an electrician who was probably in his sixties, and he was. Uh, he was laying wire um, along the uh, perimeter of the unenclosed 40s yeah, 40 <laughs> 40 story. Up, right. I, I think we were in the mid 30s right. up there. And uh, he was on a ladder, a six foot ladder on the edge. Uh-huh. And I was scared. Uh-huh. And I kept my distance. I was inside a little bit. But. Um, the thought of doing that for a living didn't appeal to me very yeah. much.
0: So it did affect you. It affected you not to do this. It
1: did. I I, I knew I wanted to go to college. I knew I wanted something um, maybe more on the professional side. Uh, and I didn't have the hand skills that my father had. They sort of skipped me. My brother, who's younger. uh uh-huh. Has those skills, which is nice. And did um, he go
0: into that field?
1: No, he went. He went into a profession, but he can also build a house. Yeah. Uh, I can barely change a light bulb.
0: So, do you think your dad was encouraging you to take that job just so you could kind of see it, or?
1: No, I, I think it was a, a great uh, opportunity to make money for college yeah. um, and to spend time in New York City. Which, yeah. even though we live close to New York City, it wasn't that easy to make the, the trip in. And we, we actually didn't go in very much.
0: And when you were working and doing that, would you take any breaks for art to go look at art? Were you interested in art at that point? In, I would say school? at that
1: point in time, I had no interest in art. Right. Um, my parents had, I don't believe they'd ever taken us to a museum.
0: And did you have art in your house at all? We had no art in our yeah. house. And, uh,
1: my, my mother painted uh, a uh, little bit uh. for a period of time. Um, late in my teens, almost at the point in time where I had left to go to college, she took it up. I think she had maybe done it, uh, when she was much younger before she had kids, but, uh, her art and a little bit of the art of her brother was in the house.
0: Um, do you know why she took that up?
1: No, I can't, I can't remember ever having a conversation about Mm -hmm. it.
0: That'd be an interesting one to have. Yeah. What was that creative you know spark was it you know that or was it boredom or whatever kids i don't, leaving. Know. Who knew I don't know i, need, were you, I don't there know there was two I, kids right you and your
1: right my brother and i he's about four and a half years younger than yeah. i yeah
0: so you were the first one out yes the door yes so you're so now one of the things about you it's not just you love art but you do i mean you definitely have a passion for art but the question is what's a, all this about baseball you've written <laughs> two or three Baseball books, including one that got an award, and so where did that fall in line? Was your family? Was your dad a baseball guy? And it's the socks that you like too, right? Well, it
1: sick. took a while to get there. Yeah, because
0: okay, um, a New Yorker who likes Boston seems rather odd. It, Even at if that time, Jersey,
1: at that scary. time, I was a Yankee fan. Okay, um, my father was a casual baseball fan. Uh-huh. Um, nothing special. I think he took me to maybe one or two games. Um, and that would have been in, in the old Yankee Stadium. Mm-hmm. Uh, and But I developed a very, very early passion, and that's not even a strong enough word for, for baseball. I absolutely love baseball. I wanted to play baseball every minute of every day. Um, did, back then... Did you play
0: in high school or junior high or anything like that? Well, I played
1: Little League. I, played, I, I went out for my freshman team in high school. I was always... Um, no-hit good field. And, uh, <laughs> and I was always uh, the shortest guy in the team, so second base seemed to be the place that I needed to go. And I always wanted to be like Bobby Richardson of the New York Yankees who played during the 60s. Um, but uh, I um, I went out for my my freshman team in high school, and interestingly enough, two kids who were ahead of me same class, but who were ahead of me in the pecking order on the on the ball club, each wound up a few years later signing minor league contracts. Yeah. So they were good. So they were good and I was not nearly as yeah. good. So I I got into a few games, um, but that was about but it. You so, loved it. but I loved it and I collected baseball cards and I played um Something called Stratomatic Baseball, which was uh, a, a board game um, that essentially it was a precursor to today's computer games. And I don't mean the graphic ones, but mm-hmm. the more um, statistically oriented games where it was a dice game where you had cards and each card was... Um, was keyed to the actual statistics of a particular player. And you would have a team and you would do this. And I had a cousin who was um, maybe 11 months younger than I, and we did this together all the time. So baseball pretty much took up every day
0: baseball is what it sounds like in a way yeah. but
1: it isn't based on actual results that are going on yeah. as we go but it was uh, it was a fun game and so. there there may be some people out there who listen or or watch this who can remember Stratomatic Baseball. It's still around, actually. It's it's a great game.
0: So (laughs) I can tell you still like it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah,
1: Haven't played it in years, but yeah.
0: So when you collected cards, were you collecting anything as, oh, this is valuable, I want this? Or was it, I want the players because I like these players?
1: That was before anyone cared about Mm -hmm. value in baseball cards.
0: What years was this?
1: This was... I think the earliest cards I can remember having were from the mid '50s. Mm. Um, I would have only been seven or eight years old, maybe maybe a little less. But into the early '60s, that's when I, I collected baseball cards.
0: And so, how when did you quit collecting them?
1: Oh, probably when I left high school and yeah. went to and when, college.
0: When did you go to that college? What year
1: was that? I I started at Dartmouth in 1967, fall yeah. of '67. Uh, right
0: during uh, the height of the Vietnam War, okay. then. Yes. And yes. so you were in school when Vietnam was going on, so you Absolutely. missed that because of uh, schooling? Uh,
1: yes, um, and I, I had to make a decision. Uh, when we got to senior year, that's when the graduate deferments had been eliminated. Ooh. And um, at that point, you had to decide. You had the choice to take your chances. It was Actually, my senior year was the first year of the... Draft lottery. Oh wow! And uh, congratulations. I can. I can. That was sixty-seven. That was no. That was uh, seventy or seventy-one. Yeah, I thought that was. Like, yeah. Yeah. At the end of of my college career. Oh, right, at the
0: end. Okay, I right understand.
1: And um, I can still remember those days. We we would have sort of parties where we would get together. This was a one no, time event, the we first time event.
0: I remember my brother when they did the lottery yeah, picking it. We were you, watching to see you, if he you, was gonna go or
1: not. You sat by the radio and you know, we would be there uh, in a fraternity or, or in a in a dorm room with a bunch of beers and the people who um who got the low numbers were the losers and they yeah. were gonna drink a whole lot more that night yeah, than the rest of us. Um I wound up getting a number that was kind of indeterminate it was it was i think it was number 95 mm, um, yeah. and they had said that they might go to 125 that
0: year and this was 71
1: this was 71 um, so you're finishing up college. so i'm finishing up college deciding whether to take some specific action with respect to the military uh, or to take my chances right and i Chickened out and decided I joined the reserves. Which I
0: don't know if that's chickening out. That's well, it was the right thing to do. What was making an informed decision of what was going on, right? And um, you know, there's other things you could do too. You could say I'm going to Canada. There's other things too. We
1: thought about a lot of those things. There was a lot of discussion on campuses those days, and Dartmouth was actually a a fairly active place. Um, We had done. A good deal of, um, of protesting on the campus. Uh, it wasn't a, in a city, of course, so it didn't have the same level of, of uh, visibility that a lot of other college campuses had um, during the, the late 60s and early 70s. But it was a, it was a unique era of, oh, yeah. uh, of American history, and we were right in the middle of it.
0: So you said, okay, 95 is not a good choice. I think right. I'll go ahead and do the reserves. And so how long did you have to do the reserves for?
1: Well, I, um, I signed up for the reserves. And um, at the same time, not knowing when they would call me um, and figuring I would have an active duty commitment of about six months, um, I had to decide on uh, going on. I, was, I had decided to go to law school. Um, Not entirely sure why, it just seemed like the next logical thing for Uh me to do without necessarily having a passion. Uh I had an uncle who was a lawyer, Um, but uh, I I simply decided that I would uh, apply to law school. I got in and I hadn't been called by the time it was time to start law school in the uh, fall of 71, so I started law school, and within about two months, I was called up. And I think it was ultimately in February of 72 that I went to basic training at Fort
0: Dix. Um, was this in for officer or was this No, for, uh,
1: this was, I was a PFC.
0: Yeah, because you had a college degree at this point, too. That didn't matter, yeah. right? Yeah, right.
1: Right. So, uh,
0: <laughs> so
1: I... I endured my, uh, my few months of uh, basic training right. and, uh, and then went back to law school. Which was Harvard, right? Which was Harvard. And okay. it was unfortunate that Harvard had changed uh, the way that it uh, set up its curriculum between the time I left and the time I came back. So I had uh, actually done one half year of law school and then left and then came back and i was hoping that i would get credit for one of the two semesters and then i would just continue and have to do another two and a half years but they went to full year courses. They weren't semesterized. They, there was no halfway point to start up again. So, you had to do a half a, so semester over? no, they said, start all over. We'll give you tuition credit. The whole but, thing, but you start. Year. Oh well, I mean, I was only repeating a half a year. Yeah. But for those of uh, your listeners who didn't enjoy law school, and I was one of those people, um, <laughs> doing an extra half year was. I think as bad as basic training. Yeah. Um, so I did that, and
0: uh, at any point in finally, that time, did you say maybe I should just not do this and go a different direction?
1: I, I I'm not sure that I actively questioned it, but it was something that was always on my mind for years after that.
0: I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. What if? if I what if? Right. a Different direction. Yeah.
1: But I think in many ways that if uh, if my timing had been different I might have been involved in computers for example mm-hmm. but it was too early and uh, and if my interest in art had developed sooner I might have gone that way I might have gone into art history or yeah. something like that
0: right I can see that for sure
1: but none of that none of that uh, focused happened you're so like I was focused. focused I did my law school did fine uh, got a job and uh, stayed in Boston Um and I practiced with the same firm for 34 years until I retired um, about eight years ago.
0: Okay, so when you graduated, so you graduated uh, college uh, in 67 and... Now, high six school, college, no, high
1: school, 67, college, 71, and
0: law school, 75. 75. Right. So you were out in 75. At that point, so you're whatever, you're you know, 24 or so... Yeah, yes. something like that. Yeah. Had you started any interest in art at that point or still not yet there?
1: I think my uh, my first real interest in art came in a course that I took, um, I think it was my senior year at Dartmouth, and it was taught by uh, John Wilmerding, who was later to be the, I believe he was the director of the National Gallery in mm-hmm. Washington. Um ponytailed, uh, maybe 30s, 40s, uh, absolutely wonderful professor with um, a real passion for art. And this was a course that I had no confidence in my own abilities, um, and I didn't know very much about art. Why did you but take
0: that course, by the way? It then? was
1: a survey course. I had room in my schedule to take something light and easy and yeah. perhaps more fun than other things. Yeah. And... And I was drawn to it. I I guess I don't remember exactly why, but I suppose it just seemed like uh, it might be a a fun course to take. And it was a it was a large survey course, and it went into issues of um, I think it spent a lot of time on more contemporary art. But again, we're now talking. Uh, about 1970, 71. So, contemporary art then was different from contemporary art today. Um, So, I I gained a nice appreciation for uh, some of what I guess we might call now modern artists. And and that summer, actually, um, after graduating uh, Dartmouth, uh, I spent on an internship in New York City. And um, one of the things that I did do a lot is I'd go to the Museum of Modern Art at lunchtime. Um, I think I joined so I could go any day, sit outside or go inside. Just to enjoy it, and And it was fun.
0: And that was by yourself you would go?
1: Um, Actually, I was starting to date my wife Mm -hmm. then, and she was in New York City too, so we would meet for lunch or otherwise and spend some time outside the museum and inside the museum. And was she into art yet? Um, Probably no more than I was. But we both enjoyed it, it was fun.
0: So it gave you guys something to do?
1: It was a start. Yeah. It was a start. But I I think the thing that um, got us going a great deal more was um, when, uh, I guess it was probably right around the time I started law school, Um, my wife and I actually married in 1972, so that was uh, shortly after I uh, finished my basic training yeah, and such. Right. Now, a graduate PFC guy. That's <laughs> right. Pretty, I right. can see why she'd want to marry. Yeah, right.
0: <laughs> uh-huh.
1: And uh, so uh, we're talking 72, and she moved. She was living in New York and, and working in the avata- advertising industry. And she moved up to Boston, where I would be at Harvard for the next three years. And um, when she came up, she got to know an elderly aunt and uncle that she had in the Boston area. She'd never, I don't think she'd met them before. Um, Joe and Lily and Spack, they were this wonderful old couple. They were probably in their... Late seventies, maybe even early eighties. By mm-hmm. then, they were they were pretty elderly. Mm-hmm.
0: Doesn't seem so they, old
1: now, though, does it? No, <laughs> I'm afraid not. They uh, they lived in Brookline, Massachusetts, and they were antique dealers. Oh wow! And they were not major antique dealers, but they'd been in the business for maybe 35 years. So, their business involvement with antiques began way earlier. So we're talking in the 30s or 40s, right. they got into it. And it was a completely different
0: world back then. And they were generalists? They, just
1: they were, everything. they collected uh, or or sold basically American antiques, um, antique furniture. They had a few paintings. They lived in a, in a little apartment that was not much more than a tenement. It was really kind of a falling apart yeah, place. They definitely
0: were then in the art business. Yes, <laughs> right,
1: right. <laughs> And it was right across the street from their very modest shop. But in their, um, in their little rental, they had amazing things, just amazing things. They had a uh, beautiful tall case clock. They had wonderful 18th century furniture yeah they were right in the heart uh, of where you
0: could get that kind of material too yes
1: wow. and and they had this this is the one that gets me the most they had a a wonderful painting by an artist a st louis artist named richard miller richard e miller he's an impressionist um his work now sells for a quarter million half million dollars and they had this wonderful wonderful painting of uh, of a woman by her mirror it was beautiful painting. We loved it. Um, One day, a couple years uh, after we had first met them and we'd see them on a regular basis, we went into their house and the painting was missing. And I couldn't believe it. We asked what happened and they sold it. Um, They probably needed the money by that particular point in time. And, um, And we were heartbroken because I love that painting. I would have loved to have found a way to buy that painting. Have and you looked
0: for it since?
1: Well, you know where we found it? We found it um, in Pittsburgh. We were going through the Carnegie Museum, and there it was on the wall in the Carnegie in uh-huh. Pittsburgh. This uh-huh. was a few years later. Um, beautiful, beautiful work. Uh, and kind of found out, I can't recall how, but it uh, I believe they sold it. It went upstream. It passed through uh-huh. many dealers' hands. Uh-huh. I think they may have sold it for about $17,000, $18,000, uh-huh. and ultimately, as I say, it's at least a quarter million dollar painting, yeah. and I don't know what the Carnegie paid for it. but
0: Would that have been your first piece of art if you had bought that?
1: Um, no. I, it's funny. They got us started... Um, Peggy's aunt and uncle got us started by uh, giving us as a wedding gift a drop-leaf table. It was um, probably a 19th century drop-leaf table. It wasn't a particularly valuable piece, but we had uh, a very small campus apartment um, and we didn't have much room, so a drop-leaf table was actually a really good idea. Mm -hmm. So um, just seeing the quality of antiques they had beginning to learn what you had to pay for antique furniture and this was back then sadly it's true again today
0: yeah, but similar price.
1: right but back then you could get these pieces for many cases less money than you would pay for contemporary furniture mm-hmm. and um, and that appealed to us so we began to collect uh, American antique furniture from the 18th to the early 19th century. And with that, uh, seemed logical, I guess, mm-hmm. to become interested in some kind of artwork. So, yeah, you got to um, have something
0: to put over the table, right? That's
1: right. All the tables that's right. So, when you think about um, room settings and museums um, in that period, you generally see portraits. Yeah, and that's right. so, we became interested in portraits and we bought, um, we're talking we bought a few portraits. Um, we're American talking portraits. American portraits from, I would say, generally the early 19th to about 1840s. And initially we were drawn to uh, some academic portraiture. Uh, we bought a painting that we uh, years later gave to the Hood Museum at Dartmouth. It was a, a painting by Chester Harding who was um, a self-taught but academic artist in the early 1800s who was a rival of Gilbert Stewart, mm. much lesser known but, um, but a very successful painter.
0: And would this always be a dual decision you and your wife or was it um, you guys have rules like you love it, get it, if you don't, if I hate it,
1: don't kind of thing? Well, that's another matter. Yeah. Uh, our collecting uh-huh. has almost always been she is fairly reluctant to spend the money and I need to push the envelope and I need to know how far to push it. Yeah, she's and your
0: breaking system. Yes, you want she
1: is or. my breaking system, <clears throat> right. So yeah. I would say that with <clears throat> a very few exceptions, I was always obliged to get through the breaking system. Mm There have been a couple situations where she was as excited about a piece as I was. And I don't think it was a lack of excitement as much as a uh, less of a desire than I to to part with the money. Yeah.
0: She may have come from a different
1: background from
0: the Depression era.
1: She definitely did. She had a father who was out of work for a number of years, and I think she felt a, a lot more. Uh, uncomfortable about spending money. Yeah,
0: that makes sense. I see yeah. that a lot. It's not you're not alone right. in
1: this. So anyway, I, we were uh, we were collecting um portraits. Uh, the academic portraits interested us for a while, but then we became more interested in folk portraits. So we started to collect that, folk why portraits. Why
0: that? Do you think you went from?
1: You know what I think it is. I. I I have always, and I think you know this about me, I I have always been fascinated by uh, the challenge of learning as much as you possibly can about something. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether it be a piece of furniture, a piece of art, I don't like it all handed to me. Mm -hmm. If all the information is there and there's no more to ferret out, it's not as much fun.
0: Yeah, you like the learning process and the discovery
1: that's correct. So for me, it's not just the chase. The chase I love, but it's not just the chase. It's the effort to research and to accumulate as much knowledge as you possibly can. And, and I've always been interested in things that were less known. So yeah. I would tend to uh, prefer a great work by a lesser artist who is less known than a average work by a better artist even putting aside differences in price
0: mm-hmm. so and why is that do you think that you um, do that i mean i don't know i think i've
1: always been a contrarian of yeah. sorts
0: is it is part of you to go okay i found this artist is great i want to develop and buy all this art because i know it's going to be valuable or does that really have no bearing and it's just i'd rather have the best example by this really well Healed artist
1: that nobody knows about i think it's more the latter um i don't think we were ever too worried about ultimate value although um uh, it was always a consideration I, I never in in these you called it the breaking mechanism with my wife I, the discussion always arose as to whether we were throwing money away or we were right. buying something that would hold its value right. and and for a long time, buying antique furniture seemed to be a no-brainer. It right. seemed, uh-huh. and this was, you know, this was going into the the bicentennial around 1976 yeah. and later. Antique American furniture was booming yeah. and um, the prices were rising and rising and rising. And our ability to buy it was limited. I wasn't making a great deal of money practicing law, but what kind I of law was making, um, I was, uh, this is extremely narrow focus. I was uh, with a large firm. Ultimately, it was a large firm. It wasn't so large when I joined it. But um, the firm had a, uh, a group within it that uh, structured real estate transactions as limited partnerships for the construction of low-income housing mm-hmm. um, using tax benefits, later tax credits, Essentially, uh, for many, many years, it has been the primary way to um, to generate low-income housing in the United States. So, um, so these, so land, these deals are structured. A
0: partnership um, forums that you can do so they can get it built, basically.
1: Yeah, we, we would we would represent. Um, Companies that were called real estate syndicators. They were the middleman. They would structure a transaction. Um, we would negotiate for investors that the syndicator would bring into the deal to provide the financing, the equity financing, and we would uh, negotiate with a general partner who was the developer of the project. So, um, you kind of
0: acted as a middleman between the general partner and the. Uh and this other middleman.
1: In effect, we were the structuring agent, yeah. um, doing all the documentation, doing all the due diligence, making sure that the transaction was viable, that the financing made sense, um, assessing the risks, then uh, essentially revealing the risks to potential investors because we were doing it was a combination of partnership law, securities law, contract law. Um, it was a, it was an interesting practice.
0: And did you represent the person that was bringing the project to you or the people who are potentially going to be buying
1: We were project? representing indirectly the people who were buying the project yeah. because we were representing directly the companies that would structure the project and go out and find the individuals who would buy it. Initially it was individuals um, in the until the tax act changed in 1986 Um, investors doctors lawyers Mm -hmm. um, professionals uh, tended to be the primary investors in these uh, tax vehicles because they got tax shelter they'd have income taxed as high as 60 or 70 percent and they would get tax losses and this made sense this allowed them to invest yeah. the money yeah, they for get their benefit. passive
0: income coming in as well.
1: Correct. So that that made a lot of sense. But then after the tax law changed the individual investor didn't uh, it, it didn't make a lot of sense for the individual investor to invest in these things the the incentives were really for corporate investors mm-hmm. so, so your later the business point, model too. changed the way we structured the deals changed we wound up doing big pools of transactions rather than each individual transaction Was it, easier or harder once for your business? it got harder it got much harder because uh before where our syndication clients were packaging deals to be bought by individual investors, mm-hmm. who had very little individual impact right. on any decisions that right. were being made on got their behalf.
0: Now you got to deal with the big corporations. We were now say, dealing we're going with, to run this ship. exactly. Your job is to write the paperwork. So we were now caught
1: in a vice between yeah. the investor corporations with lots of um, expensive legal talent. Yeah. And the developers yeah. and it and they, became yeah. less and less fun to be yeah. honest. And they
0: squeezed your margins as well.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly.
0: And that was eighty six they changed the laws?
1: I believe it was eighty six that changed the laws that created those structural differences. And then there were always little changes in the laws yeah. that we would all always have to adapt to after that.
0: And how long did you stay in the profession of as a lawyer from that point on? Eighty <laughs> six? Another ten years?
1: Um well, let's see. I uh, I finished up in 2009, so it was another 23 years. Yeah.
0: At that point when you clearly became less fun, <laughs> did you go, maybe I should do something else? Did that ever cross your mind?
1: No, I, I was, uh, you know, I, I would say that there were many times in my life where I asked myself, especially after we become much more interested in art and mm-hmm. antiques, whether I could maybe switch gears as you did yeah. and and do something like that. But the reality of that was uh, that I think it would have been extremely hard to accomplish that. Um, I'm not sure I would enjoy selling as much as you do.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, who says I enjoy selling? <laughs> Maybe it's just a means of an end, so I can have perhaps, more stuff.
1: Perhaps. <laughs> but you know, I'll tell you when we uh, when we started collecting the art we collect now, um, which is um, American painting of the 1930s and the 1940s. Um, when we started that, which was about 20 years ago, um, we would, would acquire fairly quickly. But again, my wife made it clear that if you're going to buy you to sell kind of get rid of some stuff. So I became I became a call it a quasi dealer for a period of maybe five, six, seven, eight years, um, in which we sold some pieces, not always for a profit, because as I tried to explain to my wife, Peggy, um, the things that we were selling were not the best things right, we bought they right. were the things that we kind of wanted to sell yeah. and uh, as our tastes uh, evolved um, I think we became more and more interested in better and better pieces and and it was great to at least have the ability to sell some of the lesser pieces um, to make room for for better things and so, I think
0: it's important for collectors to understand that it's fine to take a loss you know, you can take that money and put it into something else that you really love that does something more for you. Um, and I see this on a fairly frequent basis that you'll have a collector who has some things that they pay too much or it just, you know, it wasn't a great choice of what they purchased, But they're so afraid to lose money on their so-called investment, which they should never buy as an investment anyway, that they won't let it go. And you have to let it go.
1: I agree with that. I, I, I agree with it a hundred percent. I think there are times where you have to be a realistic, but there are also times where you just forget about the market. Um, if you if you're buying because you think you're gonna make money, you're you're doing the wrong thing that's to begin right. with. I mean that that's a big mistake. And and the things that I think over time uh, that we've sold, that we've made the most money on, have had no relationship to the Things that we thought would bring the most money, yeah,
0: like your American furniture, and let's get back to that. So, right. So you yes. collect all this American furniture, and is there a point where you go, okay, let's cash out on it because we can get some money and do something else, or did you stick with it through well, the high and the low?
1: I think it was a little of both. I think we were fortunate that our tastes uh, evolved. Um, we we lived in a house where the um, the furniture the antique furniture looked good and then um at a point uh, i guess it was probably in the 80s we moved to a more contemporary home mm. and this is in boston this is in a suburb of boston yeah. yes so we moved to a more contemporary home and when we did we didn't really think that what we had worked as well as it had in the prior probably house <laughs> and it didn't and and, and also, I think we were getting, frankly, tired of the portraits. And, um, you know, I'd done a lot of research on the portraits. I'd, I'd actually written an article about uh, one particular artist. Yeah,
0: who was that? I saw that. Who is
1: well, that? there are actually a few yeah. that I've done. This one um, was an, an artist named Spencer T. Bancroft, uh-huh. who was an itinerant Kentucky and New York State portrait artist in the 1840s, primarily late 1830s into the 1840s and early 50s. He actually died at age 29, mm-hmm. and um, and we had bought a pair of portraits that were signed on the back, Spencer T Bancroft. They were fa- fantastic portraits. They were just wonderful, and um, the sitters were identified and the year. And these
0: are more kind of folk art. Yes, kind.
1: these are these were actually large folk art. Uh, companion portraits of a man and his wife they were young man and his wife mm-hmm. and so I researched the hell out of these portraits um which led me to researching the hell out of this particular artist about whom nobody had ever written anything mm-hmm. um except maybe uh, one or two lines in a in an artist dictionary somewhere and um and then I um I did an article for Antiques Magazine, which they accepted for publication. They sent someone in to take photographs. Um, and, um, and then <laughs> before it was printed, Antiques Magazine had a change of ownership, and they decided they weren't going to do the article. So we had it published instead by uh, Main Antique Digest, mm-hmm. and, uh, and they did a very nice job with it. I was a little disappointed in that it's, you know, it's a newspaper and not a nice glossy magazine that people keep for years. But nevertheless, um, it was published. That was the first um, thing that I I think I got published in the art field.
0: Do you still have those portraits? No.
1: No. among others, we had gotten tired of them, yeah. and um, we found a way. Here, I'd isn't? done the research; <laughs> there was nothing more. Yeah. Um, didn't mean I didn't still like them, yeah. but they didn't work as well in our in our new home. Yeah. And um, and we decided that maybe something else we should get into, and that applied to the antique furniture too. So we sold a few pieces um, through
0: dealers, or auction, or uh, um, or yourself.
1: I think it was a combination of auction and dealers. Mm-hmm. Um, there, about that time, we were looking more at uh, galleries uh, for art, and we.
0: When would this have been, by the way? What year I, I
1: guess been? we're now getting into the late eighties. Okay. And into the early nineties, and we we took a trip. I remember. Um, to new york city again my my parents still lived in new jersey and we would visit uh, occasionally and and sometimes make time to go into new york and to go gallery hopping in new york which something you can't do much anymore because most of the galleries have closed but it was so much fun back then to do um we would um we, we were introduced i think it was a an ad that was in the back of antiques magazine every month for a dealer named Janet Marcusy mm-hmm. in um, I think it was the upper upper East or upper West side, in New York city. Uh, she was a private dealer basically, but she specialized in art of the depression era thirties mm. uh, and into the 1940s. And uh, on one of our trips, just on a lark, we stopped there and it was a revelation I mean this art was just wonderful. It was uh, full of figures um, and robust figures, activity. We're not talking about landscapes or anything inert looking.
0: It We're was talking about men on 30th floors building buildings. Yeah, things like that. Yeah. Things
1: like that. Mm-hmm. It was um, <laughs> I found it really I exciting. See a thread there. Yes, um. I found it exciting and and we looked at, at what she had. We were, uh, we, I don't think we bought anything from her, but, um, but it started a spark. And I think within a year or two, we had bought, I um, bought a, a painting at auction that was produced in the 40s and had that look of the art of the WPA. Yeah. Um, and we just continued. And um, now I think we've got a collection of about 40, 45 paintings that many of them are a little too large, but um, they, when you, it's funny, when you take a look at your collection and you try to figure out what it is, what's the commonality about what you collect. Um, And sometimes it, it, you don't know it when you're doing it, but when you look back and you have what constitutes finally a collection and you look back at the artwork you have, every single work we have, uh, with I think the exception of one watercolor, every single work has people.
0: Yeah,
1: people are the major element, um, and, and they are the dominant element in in every respect in the painting. Some kind of activity, and it can be urban, it can be rural, um, but people are are in humanity this. is in. right. And it gives the painting soul. Middle
0: class, probably, humanity to some extent. Um, oh, it's a working mixture. Years. It's yeah. is, it's it, a mixture. Is it more I mean, than just working folks? Is it also...
1: Well, we're dealing with an era that was um, overwhelmed by the Depression. And so a lot of the artists back then were very sensitive to the plight of the individuals who were not as fortunate as others in the Depression. So there are paintings um, that depict uh, poor uh, families in the South. There are paintings that depict uh, homeless people in New York City. Um, A lot of the painters back then, I would term social realists. They were basically painting what they saw. And it was painful, and they thought people should be aware of it. And so they painted it, and they painted it with true sensitivity, and, um and the the works that came out of that I think are fantastic Yeah, and
0: Dixon did it 33 to 39 basically and yeah they're some of his strongest works and they were really inspired by Dorothea Lang who was doing right. You right. Know, white Angel bread line and things like that and so I mean I do like that area a lot I think it's very strong work but will you only collect <laughs> things like that that actually fall in that 30s and 40s or because I've seen things in the 50s. Early 60s, even that have that same sensibilities. Yeah, I,
1: I think as a collector, you need to make choices. You you need to define uh, what you're collecting. You can go either way, and there there have been many times because I like art, uh, particularly American art, over a broad range of eras. Um, you know, I I'd love art from the late 19th century. Um, all the way up to around 1950 or for even the most an Ed part Mell, you've And even in an Ed Mel, yes. That as well. But um, but I think that if you 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 have to decide that you're either an eclectic collector mm-hmm. or a focused collector. And given my bent for research, um, I tend to be focused as a personality. So, we have generally been able to maintain a focus on just the 30s or 40s. In fact, I would say that uh, of all the paintings in our collection, I'm not sure that there's one that was painted before the 30s, and there may be one that was painted in 1952 based on uh, an experience in 1937. Mm -hmm. So I sort of figure it fits in. Um, I don't need to be that... That specific, but um, it's what my eye likes. It's what my eye likes, and it also allows us to uh, to maybe not have so many potential uh, purchase decisions to make. The more you're out there and willing to buy, the harder it is to keep yourself from buying it.
0: Yeah, from buying
1: too much, really.
0: I don't know if there is a too much, but... <laughs> <laughs> my wife would tell you there is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I look at my own collection and what I like to collect, and I am laser-focused on some things, like obviously Maynard Dixon. Right. Have more than I probably need, but that doesn't stop anything. But I also have, you know, if you look around just in this room, you see a Jorge Fix, you know, something modernist from the 60s at Mel's, contemporary things, and, and Maynard Dixon's. Um, so I think there's room for that, but I also understand being focused. I do think if you focus and really uh, learn what that area is, and as a dealer, I love clients that do that because it makes them informed. They can make easy decisions. Um, and you know as a dealer when you get it, you go, ah, art would love this. Yeah. This is going to be right up his alley. Right. And it seems to me that it doesn't matter <clears throat> so much who it is that painted it, but what the painting is.
1: That's true. Uh, One thing to note is that um, the 30s in particular were a wonderful, wonderful period for the development of uh, prints. Mm. And there are wonderful prints that are out there and you can focus on the 30s and build a spectacular collection of prints. And while we're drawn to prints and a lot of prints were made by the same artists who did our paintings, we have tried very, very hard to put on the brakes and not buy prints because we know that the minute we open our collection to prints, mm-hmm. we're out of control again. Yeah. So I, I try to have discipline as a collector. I I, I think it's important um, for a lot of reasons. I, I, I think certainly financially it's important, but also uh, if you want a focused collection, if you want a meaningful collection that is important within a a range that's narrower, it's easier to do that in a narrower range than it is to have an eclectic collection that is important unless you have enormous amounts of money.
0: So if the financial breaks were gone, you win that lotto, whatever. Yeah. Would that change the way you approach things, you think?
1: Yeah, I think it probably would. I think I would be more inclined to buy beautiful things that I like outside the period that I focused on.
0: So the financial constraints really are a a large component of how you gear your collection because you want the best you can have, and to do that requires financial um, restraints financially discipline. Yes, disciplines. Right word.
1: I I think um, an interesting example came out a few days ago. Um, As you know, I've. Uh, I've been researching our collection for 20 years and I've accumulated a, a great deal of information about each of the artists and pieces of art that we have uh, acquired. Which you and, can find online,
0: too. You just put it Which
1: up. I just put online. Yeah, give them the website
0: um, so they can go it's, visit
1: it. It's called uh, paintingtheamericanscene.com and American scene is a term used for the paintings uh, of the 30s and 40s that focused on American subjects—it was—it was a reaction, I think, to the um, to the European artists who were gaining increasing prominence during the 30s and 40s and who were those
0: artists
1: too. and it was yes it was and the the american artists were uh the ones we collect the ones who were deemed the american scene artists were more traditional mm. they were representational i mean some of them are much more modernist in in look so i i don't mean slavishly representational but they were clearly not abstract mm. and um and they were and again we were coming out of an era uh, of the Depression where uh, people had to look inward and they had to kind of find reasons to gain strength. So um, so the artists of this period, the dominant artists of this period, were certainly not the uh, abstract artists who were beginning to develop a, 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 new, uh, a new vision, but it was these representational traditional artists who... Uh, saw in um, on an urban street or on a farm um, they saw basically what they thought America was and so they painted those subjects and they were proud of painting those subjects and again it was the more conservative painting philosophy of the time but it was clearly the most dominant one of the time Um, And those artists as well, there was no market for art in the 1930s. Yeah, Um, that's true. These artists were painting um, what they thought was important. Some of them, um, uh, probably at least half of the artists, maybe a little less than half of the artists in our collection, um, spent a lot of time working for the federal government under the WPA programs in the 1930s. That was the only way they could make a living. You couldn't. There, there were no no dealers. There were a few, but very, very few dealers out there uh, because nobody had the money to yes, buy you know, anymore. Were,
0: it was just crazy. I mean,
1: so uh, Dixon,
0: in between you know, October of 24 29, when the crash happened right, 1935, probably sold 12 paintings. Yeah. And he got a PWPA, which is a precursor of WPA, in 1934 and did a deal. And he was doing murals. He was working on those. But, yeah, there wasn't any money.
1: There wasn't any money. And it's interesting. Let me give you a, a, an example. One of the artists in our collection is uh, a man named Leon Bible. And it's B-I-B-E-L. And uh, And you can look at the the web page for him on our um, painting the American website, just to get that's an good. idea yeah, of, of what this is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is a non-commercial website for educational purposes yeah, only.
0: That's right. It is. It's a, good, a nice website. I at.
1: Um, but what's interesting about Bible is that uh, he was, um, he was an immigrant from Poland. Um, and I think he settled in California initially, and he learned to paint by working with some of the Mexican muralists uh, on projects out in San Francisco um and then he came to New York and he couldn't make money with his art and he um he was employed by the WPA and got involved in their print division there was a a group that uh, actually did some very innovative work in prints and silk screens and um just a, they they moved the development of prints substantially during that era uh, and under the aegis ages of the federal government. But he did uh, he did a number of prints for the WPA. Um, and then uh, all the time he was painting works on his own. And this is, we're talking the mid-30s. Um, but he wasn't selling these works. He was painting them yeah, and he was storing yeah, them. Yeah, you
0: want to be creative.
1: So he did some absolutely wonderful paintings. He was a social realist, too. So his paintings are very strong and powerful paintings, and, and a lot of them have an extremely uh, powerful social message. But um, what happened to him was that um, when the WPA programs kind of ran dry in the late 30s and early 40s, um, and then the war came, um, he could no longer make a living as an artist with the wpa you had a a basic living wage it was Mm -hmm. a minimal living wage but you got paid a certain amount of money a month it might have been 30 some odd dollars a month depended upon where you were but uh, it was enough for some of these artists to live on but it wasn't enough Uh, you couldn't you couldn't make a living in the late 30s if you didn't have the wpa paycheck so what this artist did um, was he gave up art and he moved his wife uh, to New Jersey and they started up a farm. And he was, uh, he had hens and chickens. It was, he, was, he became a chicken farmer. He hmm. had no experience as a chicken farmer, yeah. but he decided he could make more money selling chickens than he could painting but he still kept those paintings and he may have done a few more, but he focused on being a chicken farmer. And then, um, I guess it was probably in the seventies or eighties mm-hmm. when he was very old. Um, suddenly, uh, people became interested yeah, in his story. Found his work, yeah. Somebody found his work, right. a dealer in Brooklyn actually yeah, found his fun. work and, uh, he was still alive at the time. And, uh, And all these paintings were dug out of his chicken coops. And we bought one. Actually, what we bought was uh, we bought a painting initially by this artist that was a courtroom painting. Uh, You were inside a courtroom and you had the judge on the bench asleep. You had a ticker tape in the background sort of uh, indicating the influence of money. Mm-hmm. You had policemen in the back uh, obtaining graft from others. You had um, lawyers on the bench um, engaged in some kind of inappropriate activity. Mm-hmm. So this was his view of the justice system in the 30s. He was a communist at the time, and... Um, and this painting, I think, was entitled And Justice for All. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm a lawyer, so I bought this painting. And it was it was a good-sized painting, and I was fascinated by it. But we got it home, and I looked at this painting. And, and this is where that question arose, uh, where you worry about an exit strategy, an ultimate exit strategy with respect to art you buy. Right. Was this painting so uh, difficult um, or so negative uh, that you'd never find a buyer for it if you wanted to at some point in the future, and we thought about it a little bit, and we decided maybe it's a little bit too much, and uh, and we actually exchanged it for another work by the same artist, which is called Building a Nation, and it it's um, kind of a mural style work showing workmen carrying big beams and and pieces of lumber to in the process. War. Well, it wasn't the thirty. It was actually <laughs> a rural scene. Okay. Uh, it was a little farmhouse in the background, but um, but it was a, it's a wonderful painting, and I'm I'm told now by the dealer who's become the specialist in in Leon Bible that it may be one of his very best. So I'm glad that we made that switch, um, but
0: no regrets is, of not having both of. them?
1: Well, the other one came up for auction a few years later, a few years ago, and I thought about it for a while, but um, but no, we didn't. Did we didn't it sell acquire. for
0: more or less? It what, sold for less than what you paid. <laughs> it's, yeah. it,
1: it, yes, so I guess I would maybe made the right decision yeah. financially on that one. Um, but anyway, I think the artists of this period, though, are fascinating in that regard, um, and and it's also people think that it's easy to find works from the thirties and forties, no, but not it not isn't. No. And it's, and, and there are a number of reasons for that. Um, and I, am not entirely sure, but I think certainly one of the reasons is that a lot of artists were not painting that yeah, much back then because they couldn't mentally. sell their work. Right. Uh, a lot of them were painting for the WPA, which means the work went into the federal government and they didn't own it. Um, And I think also we're still at a point where every now and then the estate of one of these artists opens up for the first time after his death or after the death of his children. Um, And suddenly they find this cache of wonderful old paintings that hasn't seen the light of day for years. Mm -hmm. It's surprising that this still happens, but it does. And uh, I guess the collector's dream is to be there at the right time. You are,
0: to find the cache. Right. And how how has that market changed? Let's say since two hundred eight, has it gone up, down, or is it kind of sideways?
1: I think it's probably sideways. Yeah, I do.
0: I would say that's right. Yeah. Um, there is something about those works that, regardless of of changes and taste and things, seem to have ring true. I think for people finding a resonance in that.
1: Yeah, I, I think, um, and again, we've we've never focused on feeling that we needed to be in the vanguard of what was hot um you know modernism is very hot now and you know some of our paintings might be deemed uh, on the edge of modernism yeah, I would think so. but um but for the most part we haven't been too concerned about it and we we also and i, I was I guess I was beginning to um, move along to tell you about a recent experience yeah, when I go back
0: to that. Yeah,
1: when I put um, the website up and I notified a number of collectors and dealers, people with whom I've had involvement in the arts over the years, and uh, a dealer in New York, um, who shall remain unnamed, um, from whom I've never been able to afford to purchase anything, uh-huh. um, sent me uh, an email telling me that she admired the collection, but that I I needed um, something really special. And so <laughs> she offered me a Reginald Marsh painting for $200,000, and um, I politely uh, declined, but but the point I'm making is that um, it's never been my goal as a collector to have that two hundred thousand dollar artwork, unless I can get it for twenty grand, I suppose. But mm-hmm. my goal is has always been to get really interesting fine works by any artists who um, were viable in the period. Uh, you know, generally I like to know that the artist. Has um, a body of work that is meaningful, and that the particular piece I'm buying is about the best that uh, that he's done. Um, but I don't care if no one has ever heard of them, and and it's it's troubling sometimes when people find out you're a collector and they ask you, well, you know, who do you have paintings by? Nobody's going to know the artists that I have paintings by. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we do, we, we recently acquired a Reginald Marsh, um, which, um, is not a major one. It's a, it's a, it's a watercolor work, a very nice one, but, um, that's probably the only name that anyone would recognize unless they are deeply involved in American art. And, um, and, and I think even, uh, as, as we've collected and, and we've, um, we met with curators, um, even curators who have a great deal of knowledge about the period we collect in. They've come in and they've seen our art and they've really enjoyed seeing it, but they haven't been familiar with two-thirds of the artists that we have in our collection. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's what really appeals to me because I can add value I don't mean necessarily monetary, although there can be some value added that way with research, but I can add value um, overall in terms of unlocking a little bit of the history of the artists that we have. Um, These people were professional artists for their careers. They made a living, ultimately. Um, they, They probably didn't make a good living, but they made a living. And in fact, some of them were among the leading artists of their day. And because abstract expressionism has eclipsed uh, the art that preceded it, people don't know anything about these people. Uh, One of our artists, we have two major paintings by uh, James Chapin. Mm -hmm. Uh, Chapin had 28, I think, one-man exhibitions during his career And in 19, I think it was 1940 or 42, um, a retrospective was done in New York of his work. And it was covered in all the major publications. And a painting that we own was reproduced in Time magazine that was discussing that particular show. And the New York Times critics said that he is the leading painter in the country today. Now, who's heard of James Chapin today? Nobody has, but
0: um, well, maybe they will now. Though,
1: well, perhaps. Yeah, no. Uh, no,
0: that's
1: right. Tastes change. Uh, things that sh- things that are uh, popular now, historic art that's popular now, yeah, like our um, vinyl records,
0: which we never called vinyl. Yeah,
1: I mean, things do change. But I'm not sitting here holding my breath,
0: no. waiting well, for the right. And what right. that dealer didn't understand in New York was everything was already special.
1: That's right. That's yeah. right. I, I didn't feel a need to uh, to spend my next $200,000 if it was there.
0: Yeah. Not when you're enjoying what you no. have. And, no. And it's, you know, that's what you do. I mean. Right. Well, that's one of the reasons I want you, wanted to have you on Art. We've already gone over an hour, believe it or not. That's how fast oh, it good. goes here. But you are a true collector. I mean, you, are, you embody what I think a collector should embody is that... You educate yourself, you love what you do, you're always looking for that next piece or that next artist to educate yourself, and um, you take it seriously, and you put your money where your mouth is, and you keep your material, and you share. A lot of people forget that component of it, and it's important to share with your website. I think so, too. You loan things, you had an exhibit for your work at the Museum of Northern Arizona, correct? Correct so and you know you've done all those things and i applaud you for doing that and i hope some of the collectors out there who are listening or maybe soon to be collectors can follow this guy's example maybe not 40 years as a lawyer figure it out a little earlier than that so you can have (laughs) more art and i know you would have if you could have
1: yes i think you're right about that
0: (laughs) i know i am you know because you have that want to collect and to educate and you love it you clearly love it you you do
1: yeah um Stop me if we're running over too much, but let me, let me tell no you okay, let, let me tell you one story that I think maybe your listeners will find interesting. and I think it's been one of my most um, satisfying experiences in uh, the collecting field. Uh, we bought a painting um, I think it was maybe 10, 12 years ago, uh, by an artist named Harold Rabinowitz. Uh, R a b i n o v i t z. Um, this was something that um, I had I had actually seen a painting offered by a dealer by Ravinovitz online, and I liked it a lot. But I was too late. It happens to collectors all the uh. time. And uh, and ultimately, the dealer uh, had found another work. Because of his advertisement, uh, another Rabinovitz work came out of the woodwork, and he bought it, and uh, and he made it available to me at least initially. Um, and this was a five foot painting, about five feet by two and a half feet, um, and it pictured a um, a young mother. Uh, grasping um, an infant child the child's naked and the child is uh, she's crouching and the child is looking out behind her shoulder at um, her at the the child's father who is carrying a lunch pail and he's walking home Mm -hmm. from uh, a day in the fields it's not clear it's a rural picture you can see some mountains in the background so It might have been a farming area. It might have been a mine. I don't know. But uh, you see a little bit of the interior of the cabin they live in. It's obviously a poor rural family. But it's a Madonna-like picture. It's Mm -hmm. a beautiful picture. And I was totally taken by this picture. Um, Had to have it. Um, It was going to be expensive. It was going to be among the most expensive pieces we'd bought. Mm -hmm. And it was by an artist I had never heard of. And you couldn't find anything in the literature about this artist, maybe a mention here or there, because um, he did show during a brief period, um, well, let me step back a little bit. The the painting was dated 1936. And um, <clears throat> the artist, it turns out, um, Harold Rabinovitz, uh, born in 1915 and came from a, fairly well-to-do family in Springfield, Massachusetts. His father was a local doctor and uh, his Jewish family, and they um, they were able to send him to Yale. He got a B.A., a B.F.A., I guess, at Yale in 1935, mm-hmm. and he painted this right out of Yale. He's 21, He's 21 years yeah. old. In fact, um, on his 21st birthday, January of, of 1936, this painting was um, exhibited at the Springfield, Massachusetts Art League, which is a regional annual exhibition, much more important than than you might have imagined. And the judges uh, for this particular exhibition were Edward Hopper mm-hmm. and two other major painters whose names you probably wouldn't recognize, but who were major in, in, in the at the time, a New York and a Philadelphia painter. And this particular painter won first prize. This painting won mm-hmm. first prize, and um, and so this artist, um, again, how can you have such a fantastic painting by an artist you've never heard of? You got to know that. I had to know why. I had to know what the story was. Yeah, and
0: where's the rest of it?
1: Where's the rest of it? What's What's this all about? So, I started to look into it. By uh, strange coincidence, before or after
0: you bought the painting?
1: Sometimes I do this. Usually after I buy the yeah. painting, I, I probably shouldn't. But you don't want to invest yourself uh, before you're able to buy something because right. you may not be able to get it. Yeah. Um, but I, um, I was able to find um, a the paint. The painter died in 1944. He died in World War II. Yeah. Uh, he was only 29 years old. Yeah. So that explains a lot of why he's not known. But in um, that bare fact, I did know. But I I found a uh, a niece of the painter who lives in Tucson. Oh, that's
0: interesting.
1: And, uh, and actually, the dealer I bought it, the painting from, is in Tucson. Yeah. We were not in Tucson when we bought the painting. Uh-huh. We had no uh, reason to imagine we'd ever live in Tucson. Right. But um, in fact, the painting went to Massachusetts and now we're in Tucson and it came back to Tucson. But anyway, this, this, uh, this woman was a niece of, uh, of the artist and I contacted her and, um, and what was most interesting is that she had a scrapbook, a family scrapbook that had passed down to her that contained um, probably 25 or 30 newspaper clippings from... Springfield newspapers, New York City newspapers, um, and photographs of the artist, some of his works. Um, it also contained a, um, some incredible things, such as the original postcard that the artist sent from um, the Philippines when in World War II. And, and he did go... Uh, into the Army in 1941 when he was only 25 years old. At the time, he was a, a practicing artist in New York City. Um, but he, he joined the Army, and, um, and he was sent to Bataan. Mm. And he was captured in the first few weeks of the war. And he was in a Japanese prison camp. And they allowed you, um, under those circumstances, to send a little postcard to your family back home um, that would indicate that you're well. It would be censored, so anything more than the minimum was not allowed. And I think it had 50-word max. Mm-hmm. But these these letter, these postcards are in that um in, in that scrapbook. Oh, and, and, and they, from they were the from the Philippines. And they were just really fascinating from a prison camp. So um so I had, I borrowed this, uh, this scrapbook and wow, what a, what a cache of wonderful stuff. Right. And I, I couldn't let it go. So I, um, I was able to locate uh, the, uh, the niece's brother who was in Connecticut um, and uh, the other side of the family, there was another niece and nephew Basically, four nieces and nephews who were the survivors of this artist who had never married. And, um, you know, they are all my age, roughly. And each of them has a collection of probably a quarter of the output of Rabinovitz's work. Now, there are maybe a dozen and a half to two dozen paintings and prints by Rabinovitz in the springfield massachusetts uh, art museum things that were given by local Mm
0: -hmm. people
1: who had bought them during their lifetimes but um so between the springfield art museum and these four private collections it represents most of the extant work of the artist
0: did you end up getting any more of his work
1: I didn't. I tried on a few occasions, um, uh-huh. but uh, the best ones are in the museums and one private collection in Connecticut where, and this saddens me in some ways, this person happens to be a, um, he's a very nice individual and, and we met him and saw his collection, but his collection is uh, all in storage. Um, um, he's a folk art collector, so his folk art collection is all over the house and he's one of the leading folk art collectors in the country. But his collection of, of his uncle's work is yeah. is all boxed and, and kept in the attic. Um, I visited him. He took them all down. He actually had a professional photographer take photos for oh, me. Good. And, um, and another uh, nephew in uh, Florida had a bunch and he sent me photos and uh, there were a few left in Tucson, although the uh, the niece in Tucson had sold a number of of hers through a dealer here, and then um, and then there was a fourth collection in New Jersey, another niece, um, who was very difficult. It took me three or four years to finally get her to be willing to show me what she had. And mm-hmm. one day we visited her, and she took it all out, and I wound up getting photographs of all of the work. Um, I piece together a, a biography from the clippings yeah. Um, and it turns out that this artist had a career from when he painted our painting in 1936 while he was still in Springfield so 40, to 1941 41, when yeah. he joined the army and he went yeah, uh, in 37 it was a five-year career he went in 1937 to New York to make his his, his way mark, yeah. And uh, in New York, he lived in the Fourteenth Street area. Um,
0: and did you do a book or? A and manuscript? I did a book.
1: Uh-huh. I, I did a I did a, a catalog raisonné actually. Is that printed a bio. I self published it because. So Can
0: people find that on their website?
1: They can find that uh, on. Um, you can find that on Amazon, or they can find it on my website, which is hitnerbooks.com. Uh-huh. H I T T N E. And I would recommend
0: people to go there because we don't have time to go into the details, at least maybe on this podcast. But he's written a, group, a couple of great books on baseball, as well as a murder mystery that takes place in the that same kind of 30s 40s. Well, it's not a
1: murder mystery. You're the, you're the crime, guy who does sorry. the murder mysteries. Crime. But uh, actually, the last element of of the story on uh, Rabinovitz was that. Recognizing that no one really would still be interested in a monograph and catalog raisonné on a painter that nobody still has ever heard of,
0: yeah,
1: um, and I think nine copies have been sold.
0: Um, oh, we'll up that. Yeah,
1: worry. maybe get to ten. I thought that <laughs> it would be a great deal of fun to fictionalize what I knew of his life, yeah. and so I wrote um, a fictional account of a life based on a life of an artist based on Rabinovitz, yeah. or based loosely on Rabinovitz. And the
0: title of the book is... And the
1: title of that is Artist, Soldier, Lover, Muse. Yeah. Uh, you've sold some copies yeah, here. Yeah. And... you got uh,
0: good reviews from people that have... And it,
1: that was a lot of fun. And, and the, the reason for doing that was that more people could could actually enjoy the story.
0: Yeah.
1: It wasn't um, a totally obscure thing. It was something that was, I think, of more general interest.
0: Yeah. There you have it all right. We have Robinowitz. We can get a actual copy of his book on Art's website, or you can also get his new novel, which is based on Robinowitz loosely based, but it uh sounds fantastic. So I guarantee we'll <laughs> sell at least one, even if it's just that to sounds me. great. <laughs> <laughs> and
1: and I, I would mention to listeners who are in the Tucson area that uh I will be doing a reading from the novel at the University of Arizona Art Museum. On uh, Sunday, December 2nd at 1 p.m. And at that time. um,
0: Hopefully, this podcast will be out by then. That would be (laughs) nice if it's. So, even if it it isn't, whatever, (laughs) if you'll put that YouTube video, maybe you can get it video and you can put it up on your website and people can see it. That'd be great. Yeah, that'd be great. So, thank you, Art, for coming and talking. Thank you. And um, I'm going to see if you will get me a Robinowitz photo. So, we'll put it on the. On this YouTube sure. video as well. Sure. sure. Art Hitner. Art okay. Hittner diaries. Great. Real collector. Thanks. Thank you. It's fantastic.